Good morning. All right, let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love and your goodness and that regardless of the chaos swirling in the world around us, you are always love, always reliable, always constant. We pray that your spirit will join us today, help us see more clearly how you've designed your universe to operate and that we can choose to follow where you're leading and be part of your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson 12 in the quarterly, the promise, the everlasting covenant, and the title is covenant faith. Our memory lesson today is Galatians 3.11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. We've all heard that, right? What does it mean, the just? Can you think of another word for just? A synonym for just? Right. Right. Both of you, exactly, right. So you could say the right Or a longer word for that is the righteous. The righteous shall live by faith. And who are the righteous? They are the ones. And what what I understand it means, very straightforward. The just are those who, in governance of the self, the decisions they have to make in governance of self, choose to do what's right. And they live with that choice by faith, meaning they live by trusting God with how it turns out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the plain of Dura, they have a decision to make. Bow to the idol or don't bow to the idol. Is that their choice or God's choice? If they're just or they're right or they're righteous, what do they do? They don't bow. And then they live by faith, trusting God with how it turns out. That's what it means. We choose in governance of self to do what we know is right in in any moment of life, But how things turn out is up to God, not up to us. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar, we know that our God can deliver us from the fire. But even if he doesn't, they didn't have a word of what God would do. They knew what he could do, but they trusted him. That's the the faith. I trust him with my life. I trust him without turn. If it's more glory to him that I, Paul the apostle, get beheaded or Peter get crucified, Uh, or Stephen gets stoned. I trust him with the outcome. I'm not going to compromise simply to protect me. The just, in governance of self, do what's right, trusting God with the outcome. That's what I think that means. And Revelation 12, 11 describes those who are at the time in earth's history when Christ appears, the second coming, in these words, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. The longer version, they overcame him, by the blood, the, the devil, they overcame him. By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Even more in Job, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yes. So, in fact, he put his life... If my life glorifies you to be put to sleep right now, I trust you to do that. If it somehow benefits you in, in reaching others, uh, this is Stephen being stoned. He trusted God. And, of course, Paul was convicted by the magnificence of Stephen's testimony and grace and love and forgiveness of those who were stoning him, that he didn't have malice or hatred. He saw something. And and you know the story of the martyrs that died in the arenas of Rome. What helped spread the gospel is that they sang hymns. They were not terrified of death. Where the Romans lived in absolute terror of death and they were controlled by fear, these people were not controlled by fear. They had something that the Romans didn't know and they they wanted it. They wanted that peace. And so... 
And Tim, if you look at Moses, he wasn't just saying if it's more glory, put me to sleep. He was willing to give up his life eternally. So greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is the this is the difference between the survival drives. Greater selfishness has no sinful human than to sacrifice others to protect self. <laughs> Greater love has no man that he give his life for friends and for others. Yeah, that's the contrast. So the blood metaphor, they overcame by the blood of the lamb. The blood is a metaphor for the life of Christ. These individuals have died to self, have been reborn with new heart motives that love God and love others. They've received the indwelling spirits. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's the blood. They overcame by the blood, by the new life of Christ living in them. And the word of their testimony, word of their testimony, having been reborn to live like Christ, they testify the truth about who God is. They live God's principles and how they conduct themselves, present truth and love, lead people free. Don't participate in the coercive systems of human governments that try to control other people's behaviors and coerce other people's consciences. These people don't do that. If you haven't read the three-part blog series on who created whom, an exploration of the origins of our favorite God, uh, written by a guest author, I encourage you to read the series. It's profound. It's powerful. Uh, you will discover how our sin condition causes chaos, fear, survival drives, and the need to feel safe led to the rule of law, the systems of human governments that we have enacted in order to help us survive and feel more secure, and then how we took that system that is the best sinful humans can do and projected it onto God and have taught that God runs his universe like we sinners do. It's, it's profound. It's really good. I encourage you to read it. The lesson reflects on Homer's odyssey and how Odysseus um, had, made, uh, had many obstacles in his long journey home uh, that were afflicted by the gods to cause him the appropriate amount of suffering before the gods would allow him to reach home. And then the lesson states the following. In one sense, we are like Odysseus on a long journey home. The crucial difference, however, is that unlike Odysseus, we can never suffer enough to earn our way back. The distance between heaven and earth is too great for us to atone for our mistakes. If we get home, it will have to be only by the grace of God. Anybody want to comment before I uh, dissect this? Such uh, another, uh, you know, I'm going to dissect is a good word. Eviscerate might be a better word. Okay, uh, it is true that our suffering will not fix the sin problem. That's true. Absolutely. You can su it doesn't matter how much it doesn't fix the problem. Save us, return us to oneness with God. Our suffering doesn't do that. It doesn't remove sin from us. But the way the lesson has worded this, I find truly sad. Because it fosters misunderstanding and perpetuates falsehoods about God. So do you hear any problems in the way it's stated? So the way this stated, the problem that needs, needs fixing is our mistakes. We cannot suffer uh, great enough to atone for our mistakes. Our mistakes need atoning for, according to the way this is stated. Yes or no? Yeah. 
Is that really our problem? This is what I was conditioned to believe. This is what I was raised to believe. It was all focused on my bad choices, my sins, my bad acts. That, that's my problem. The mistakes. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51.5. Now, how many of you or any other human being you know chose to become a sinner rather than was born a sinner? Do you understand being born in sin and conceived in iniquity means we're born out of harmony with God? We're not born operating in perfect love and trust. We're born infected with fear and selfishness. And what does that fear and selfish scientist call it? The survival drives. Me first. Watch out. What do those drives automatically result in? What kind of behaviors? Well, fear and selfishness is the the motives and they act as selfish actions, which, which the Bible describes as sins. It's about me getting ahead, advantaging myself over others. Kill or be killed. So the behaviors or the mistakes or the bad acts that we do are are actually symptoms of a condition with which we were born. They're not the actual problem themselves. They're symptoms, and they certainly make the problem worse. You, you, you act out those fears and selfishness. You, you behave in that way. You sear the conscience. You harden the heart. You worsen and corrupt your condition. There's no question about that, but it's not the cause of the condition. It's the result of the condition. So the, so the biggest problem in the paragraph is that it misdiagnoses the sin problem. And if the diagnosis is wrong, then the... Treatment is wrong. Yeah, Russell. What's diagnostic is that they chose to compare salvation with Greek mythology. It tells you already that if you're going to use pagan mythology as a as a metaphor for how things actually work, then you already think that things behave in a pagan manner. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it's good. Because paganism is all based on imperial law, gods that have to punish. Because they're angry. Because uh, angry, offended, whatever. And that's how justice works, punishing the the wicked. They just have a better solution. We can't bring anything and suffer enough. So God sent his innocent son and made him suffer in our place because God's really a just God. And and it's always just to have an innocent suffer in your place. Yeah, it's so corrupt. It is just vile. It really is. (laughs) So the sin, so they misdiagnose the sin problem as bad actions or choices rather than the condition of the heart and mind. And this is how all human governments function. Human governments function on behavior modification, on setting laws that will, will intervene when bad behavior happens, but they have no jurisdiction nor concern with the hearts and the motives or the fantasies or the things you think or what, what you long to do or what you love or hate. They, they have no concern with that as long as your behavior complies. But God's law is, is, the kingdom of God is within you. God's law actually is concerned with the very motives that drive your actions. He wants to fix, that's why in God's system, he will write his law in your heart and mind. Adam and Eve are the ones who chose to infect themselves with selfishness and fear. And we've all been born to this terminal state. And so the, the, the lesson authors and all those who hold the penal, imperial, legal lie always misdiagnose the sin problem as bad acts, deeds, and behaviors that get recorded in books and that get adjudicated in some courtroom system. They always do. 
And thus they always promote a false remedy that has no power. And then Paul describes that at the end of time, that these are those who have a form of godliness but deny the power. Very religious but powerless to overcome. So when you hear the phrase, we can never suffer enough to earn our way back, are they suggesting that suffering is a requirement to salvation? That while we couldn't suffer enough, Jesus could suffer enough. He could have all the sins of every person, past, present, and future, place them, and he could suffer so much that his suffering pays the debt that we don't have to pay. I'll let you just, uh, I won't go into how corrupt that is and, and how if we, if we only, uh, you know, I'll let you, I've said that before. Go on to Sunday's lesson. got too much else in the lesson. Um, yeah, first paragraph, the Old Testament way of salvation under the Mosaic Covenant is no different from the New Testament uh, way of salvation under the New Covenant. Whether in the Old Covenant or Old or New Testament, Old or New Covenant, salvation is by faith alone. If it were anything else, such as work, salvation would be something that was owed to us, something the Creator was obliged to give us. Only those who do not understand the seriousness of sin would believe that God was under some obligation to save us. On the contrary, if anything... Uh, if anything, there was only one obligation, and that was what we owed to the violated law. We, of course, could not meet that obligation. Fortunately, Jesus met it for us. So poorly misunderstood and so confused. It's so, so sad. Jesus said to the leaders of his day, uh, to Nicodemus, you ought to be a teacher. You're te- you, you don't even understand this stuff. These teachers don't understand because they are corrupted by a human law system. That God is obligated to save us. He is, he, right in the middle there says uh, that God was under some obligation to save us. Only those who do not understand the seriousness of sin could believe that God was under some obligation to save us. Yeah, they're, 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 so they're not saying he is. They're saying, um, they're saying if you don't understand, then, then you would think he's obligated. He's not obligated is what they're saying. Okay, so let's highlight the truth here first. And it is true that people were saved in Old Testament times and New Testament times in the exact same way. And that's through the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. That's true. So that part is true. The promised seed that would crush the serpent's head provides the means of salvation for all human beings, no matter when they've lived in earth's history. But the lesson states that our salvation is by faith alone. That's not true. I'll read to you Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. Grace is God's work. It's an act. It's God's initiative, God's actions to provide the means and remedy necessary to, and the resources to heal and save us to restore us, to reunify us with him. And Jesus is the individual through whom God provides all of this. Faith is our trust in God by which we partake of what God provides through Christ. Faith without God's grace or God's initiative or God's actions or God's achievements through Christ benefits us not at all. It's very interesting that they left grace out. The next point the lesson misinterprets is about works, as if we have no role to play in our own salvation. 
For those who can see the problem through human-imposed law, they always misunderstand and always will. It's impossible for them to see the truth while believing a lie. You hear that? It's impossible to understand the truth while believing a lie. And the, and, and, and the idea that God's, God's law functions like human law is a lie. And if you believe that, you cannot appreciate the truth. That lie obstructs it. It prevents it. So n- let's, let's be very clear. No human being can contribute in any way to the saving remedy or the saving of the human species. That was 100% done by God through Christ. But every human being that is saved as an individual, notice the difference, not providing or achieving remedy to save themselves, not saving the species, Jesus did that. But every human being that is saved as an individual works with God for their own salvation. So I'll read you Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Or James 2, 18 through 24. But some of you say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the devils believe and shudder. You foolish man. Do you, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete in what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. This is why Martin Luther said, I do not find Christ in the book of James. He rejected it. And he went with the penal legal system that he created for the purpose of eviscerating the Catholic Church's power over the teachings of purgatory because the Catholic Church's fraudulent system of purgatory manipulated people to continue to fund the church by saying, your loved ones are in purgatory, but if you give the church money or go off to a crusade or do some good work for the church, then then their sins that haven't been fully purged or punished in this life will be, your works will erase or finish purging their sins, and therefore they can be launched into heaven. And Martin Luther came up with penal substitution theology, which says all sins, past, present, and future, put on Jesus, and God punished them in Jesus, so there are no unpunished sins left to be purged for the saved, so we get rid of purgatory. That was the whole origins of this penal substitutionary lie, still based on imperial law and the idea that sin needs punishing. So he couldn't find any, any place for James because it didn't make sense in his imperial law system. <laughs> So what does it actually mean, though? Our individual salvation, again, not the procuring, providing, or achieving of the remedy that actually saves. That's that's not up to us. That was achieved by Christ. Or setting the species human right with God. Jesus did that as a human being. But after his achievement, we have the opportunity to partake of what he's provided. 
And our individual salvation is a cooperative effort, and it requires the work of God in Christ to reveal the truth that wins us to trust. And it requires the remedy he um, procured to be partaken by us and produced in us, but it requires our active, willful participation to trust God and follow his directions. So our works do not produce the remedy. They simply receive and live out the remedy. The penal lie claims that we are righteous by legal declaration while we remain unrighteous in heart and mind. Understand what that... Just pause. God declares you to be righteous, even though you're not, is fantasy. It is not reality. It is a made-up, fantastical, alternate universe that doesn't exist in God's universe. In fact, it's not even righteousness by faith. It's unrighteousness by faith. If you have faith, you can remain unrighteous while God declares you to be righteous. It's unrighteous. It's the exact opposite of the gospel message. And that's what's taught in the penal system. And it would call God a liar. And it would make God out to be able. It is a fraud. It says that a person... Think about it this way. It's like saying a person with metastatic terminal cancer who has a doctor go into his medical records and remove the pathology reports, and the doctor writes a note in there saying that the patient is cancer-free, and the doctor declares him to be cancer-free, therefore the patient is now cancer-free? No, he's still terminal and dying. That's what this system does to people. Oh, I can feel good about my unrighteousness because in heaven, God actually now believes that I'm not unrighteous. I can feel good that I've got metastatic cancer and all the sickness and symptoms that come along with it because my doctor in the hospital administration, they actually think I'm cancer-free. And furthermore, you can never be perfect yeah. on this earth. And what happens when you believe that lie, then you continue to practice unrighteousness which solidifies your character in fear and selfishness. You become hardened in heart while you feel so good about your legal setting in the courtrooms of heaven. So Ellen White wrote the following, uh, in, and she was one of the people who, with Jones and Wagner in 1888, advanced the righteous by faith message where we actually become the righteous of God. We're not unrighteous while we're declared righteous. We become righteous. She wrote this regarding the your individual salvation requiring your cooperative effort. This is out of uh, Second Mind Character Personality, page 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with, with divine energy is the link that binds men up with one another and with God. The Apostle Paul says, We are laborers to God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Man is to work with his facilities with the facilities God has given him, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then our high calling, page 310. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of humans of a human soul. Two forces at work in the salvation of a human soul. It requires the cooperation of man and with the divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid credulity. I mean, blind faith. I believe God said it. I believe it. I settled it. No. He does not dishonor the human understanding. 
But far from this, he calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. You are labors together with God. God cannot save a person against that person's will. It requires their willful effort and participation. However, no matter how hard you work, you can never fix or heal yourself. You cannot provide the remedy. Only design law, laws of health type thinking, brings perfect harmony to the scripture. Any imperial law system it gets them very upset. Your works will never be good enough. You'll never merit it. You can never suffer enough. You can't pay the debt. You can't pay the fine. And they get very uncomfortable. The third point that needs clarifying in this statement by the quarterly is that we owe the law. What, what is it that we owe the law? The penal lie teaches we owe the law a death penalty. Somebody has to die to pay the penalty of the law. Isn't that what's taught? Mm-hmm. Is that really what's required? Well, here are some historic quotes that I find that are beautiful. Um, notice what this author, Ellen White, again, states that, in her view, the law requires. And if you think about this, if somebody were to drink some poison and they're dying, if they're to have life, what do the laws of health require for them to live when they've got poison in their system? If they're dying with some poison, well, the law, the laws of health, that the poison is violating in their system, does that law require that someone else be killed so they can live? We've got to kill this other person because this person's got poison and they're dying. And if we do, then, then the laws of health will allow this person to live. Does that work for anybody? See, that only works in a human artificial reality where you have made-up laws that require external enforcement and you can get the judge to say, hey, I'll accept this person's suffering or, or death in place of that person's and we will say that the law of the state has been satisfied because somebody's paid the fine. That's completely pagan. Yes, Wendell. If you exchange the word law in most of these statements with the word blueprint, would it make sense? To a degree. If you replace the word MRI scanner and the law, would it make sense? So, for example, it doesn't make sense that if I pay the MRI scanner something, it will be better. Or if I, if I go to the blueprint and the blueprint says, well, if I change the blueprint or whatever, what, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to change the blueprint. So, so, yes, so this is why I, I use the term design laws. Design is another word for blueprint. But I never say just design alone because they're, they're, it is the design, but the laws are actually functional. They're operational. So, so it goes beyond. But, 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 but the written law was given as an MRI to show what life requires. Life requires this. It's like um, you should breathe. It requires it. So here's a quote. I love this one. I've read it so many times. Hopefully you've all memorized it as, as I have memorized it. Um, but it's, it, 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 if you had to have just one quote for Ellen White to kind of summarize the whole thing, this is the one you should memorize. This is our age of 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a, a, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. But Christ coming to earth as a man lived a holy life and... Paid the death penalty to satisfy the claims of the law? No. 
developed a perfect character. That's what the law requires. Because that's the basis of life. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Remission of sins through punishment, payment, appeasement, expiation. No, through forbearance. Through forbearance. If you understand design law, laws of health, you understand exactly. Your, your child drank poison. They're dying. They're frothing at the mouth. Laying on the, uh, the, uh, gr- the garage concrete floor, seizing. Well, I wish I could forgive you, my five-year-old child, but somebody has to pay me a life debt before I can. If your brother dies for you, then I'll forgive you. That's stupid. That's what they teach. No, but your forgiveness alone doesn't remedy the problem. God's forgiveness was automatic, but it didn't remedy the problem. Christ came to remedy the problem, to fix what sin had done to this creation. Uh, Second selected messages to 11, but the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy and the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness because that's how life is built. It's like the law requires, law of respiration requires you breathe. Um, the divine law requires to, uh, us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourself. How about this one? Uh, that, that, that one was New Life, page um, 32. This one, the, uh, which is out of Signs of the Times, January 7, 1897. God's law requires that justice and right be exercised between man and his fellow man. It requires that we shall not injure our neighbor in his property, his feelings, his health, and his good name. Is this what you see with the social justice movement? That everybody advocating for social justice is vigorous to protect the property of others? The good name and reputation of others? Others' health? You see, God's law requires we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we would not injure them. This thing that is spreading through the world under the guise of social justice is evil. It is not justice. It is justifying your ability to go out and harm somebody else in the name of right. How many police officers have been shot in the last year around the nation? People are doing this under the name of justice. It's not justice. It's corruption. Continuing on with the quote, it requires compassion for the afflicted, but even if he be our enemy, that in all of our associations with our fellow beings, we shall show the same love and care that we would wish to have exercised towards ourselves. That's what the law requires. Why would the law require that? Rules. I mean, if you move to America, you're supposed to obey the laws of America. If you're in Russia, you're supposed to. I, I won't ask you this question, but let's pretend uh, somebody else is here. Do, do you brush your teeth? Why do you do it? Because mommy has a rule? We, and rules must be obeyed? Or, no, because there's a law of thermodynamics, and if I don't put energy in, it decays. It's how, and my mommy loved me enough to give me a rule, and I didn't know that. But now I don't do it because of a rule and rules have to be obeyed. I do it because that's how reality works. 
God's law. How do we understand the law? Rules that require obedience or design of how reality works and only life, health, and happiness can exist in harmony. You break those, you're always injuring yourself. You're always causing pain, suffering, and ultimate death. I'm going to skip. I had some more quotes to say that, but we have so much to get into. Tuesday's lesson, it states um, the last paragraph. In the last paragraph, we read the following. In the lesson... Guys, in the lesson. <laughs> the righteousness that saves us is a, is a righteousness that is credited to us, a righteousness that is, to use a fancy theological term, imputed to us. This means that we are declared righteous in the son of, sight of God despite our faults. It means that the God of heaven views us as righteous even if we are not. This is how he saw Abraham. And this is how he will see all who come to him in the faith of Abraham. This is what they claim to be righteousness by faith. It is in reality unrighteousness by faith. You get to remain unrighteous while you have faith that God declares you righteous even though you're not. Is it true that Jesus is in heaven pulling the wool over his father's eyes? So the father can't actually see your unrighteousness. He doesn't know it. It's like, oh, no, Jesus has told me this person's righteous. And when I look at this person, I would like to discern the true intents of his heart. I heard David pray once, search me and see the wicked way in me, O God. And, and, and so I look into David, but all I see is this like force shield of my son. And I just see perfect Jesus in between us. I can't actually see what's going on in David's heart. So I have uh, no choice but declare David righteous. But, but I'm, a, I'm a little concerned because he really might not be. He knows just like Jesus does. He knows, that's right. So is it, would you, is it true that the God of all truth, all perfection, all knowledge declares things to be one way when they're actually another way? That would make God out to be a liar. It would make him out to be a fraud. It would make him out to be exactly what Satan says he is. And that's what penal substitution theology does. Yes? If you were to go to heaven, think, I mean, you wouldn't go to heaven thinking that. But if somebody went to heaven and they were not righteous, that God didn't heal, then sin would be perpetuated. Would it? How does reality work? See, th- this, is, uh, this leads to a perspective that is taught by some around the circle about what they call safe to save. People have to be safe to save. And only those who are saved, and we have concerns, and the angels who are looking in who can't read hearts and minds, because if they could, they would have seen Lucifer's rebellion in the beginning. They can't read hearts and minds, and they have concerns about whether we'll be good neighbors in heaven or not, and they don't want any unrighteous person coming up there or not. Uh, and therefore, we have to have the investigative judgment, and during the investigative judgment, all the records are open, and, and the angels are checking out who's really safe to save or not. It's all about proving that the people coming won't be unrighteous. We can all have be safe neighbors. That entire line of thinking is based on human law. It's not based on reality. It's part, it's part of the same distortion of reality. And that's what I'm saying. They're, they wouldn't be in heaven. Yeah, they, but if they were to be in heaven, in fact, they will, if we consider heaven to be God's presence, at the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and Jesus comes down and all the saints come down and all the angels come down, the wicked uh, are raised and they, for a period of time, do enter into that presence. And what's their experience? 
See, this is the point. To sin wherever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. Those who love selfishness and hate and bigotry and, and vileness and vulgarity and impurity and lies and deceit, what will it be like when they are in the presence of infinite truth and infinite love? It, and they have full awareness of their own vileness and the pain and the, and the hurt that they've caused others because they can't deny anymore. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Oh, no, it actually really was you. You can't deny that anymore because infinite truth is, is pervading your awareness now. See, when they come in the presence of God's infinite life-giving glory, which is the infinite, and the Bible describes it in multiple places, but the Ancient of Days took his seat and rivers of fire came out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand before him. This is not combustion. The, the, the righteous live in this. Is the, the, it's described as a fire. But it is not. It's what you saw at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus in his human body that was still subject to death because it died very shortly later, that body did, was bathed and he was bright as a sun. But it didn't harm him because he had no sin in him. This is not combustion. It's not flamethrowers. This is the fires of truth and love. And, and the wicked who are unrighteous, when they are in the presence of God's unveiled glory, and he no longer shields and understand God has been shielding this entire world from his full life-giving glory because we could not survive it right now. And he's working to remove from us fear and selfishness and write his law in our hearts because it says in, in John that when he comes, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. Then we will stand in that place. So this idea, safe to save, it's contradictory in a couple ways because what does save actually mean? Healed. Healed. And so it would be like saying, we want to find out all these people who have this terrible infection, maybe something called COVID, I don't know. You can think of something, I I don't know. Um, But they have this terrible infection. We want to find who are the ones that are safe to heal. Well, if you're healed, you're no longer infected. If you're well, you're no longer sick. And so if you're no longer sick, then you're not a threat. So safe to save is even contradictory under the healing model because once they're, once they're healed, they're safe. It's the healing that makes them safe. So it's like, who's safe to heal? Everybody is safe to heal. Who's safe to live next door to only the healed, which are the saved? So all the saved are safe, but all the unsaved are not. And they wouldn't want to be there, and it becomes self-evident. You don't have to have an investigation to look in records. You simply expose everyone to God's infinite presence, and all the healed love it. And all the unhealed beg for the mountains to fall on them. And crush them because they don't want to be there. So that's how reality works. I got off on a little tangent. Sorry about that. But it's reality. Design law teaches us this discernment. So back to what the lesson read, though. This imputed idea, this idea of imputed righteousness is being declared righteous even though we're not. It's a complete corruption. What righteousness transforms us? Imputed or imparted? The um, penal legal people will tell you imputed is the legal adjustment and credit to you in a courtroom in heaven. Imparted is the transforming righteousness you receive that makes you fit. Imputed sets you right legally. It's called justification. Imparted sanctifies you or cleanses you. Uh, It's called sanctification. It's a much to do about nothing. We don't need the word imputed. It's much to do about nothing. They, They functionally achieve the same thing. You cannot have, can you have salvation of any soul without, use the Bible metaphor you like, without their being reborn? 
without them having a new heart and right spirit, without the law being written in the inner man, without them being recreated into Christ's likeness, without their healing, restoration, whatever metaphor, circumcision of the heart by the spirit, having the heart of stone taken out and heart of flesh put in, whatever metaphor of scripture, can you have salvation of a person without that? No, and that is imparted and imputed. So I'll give you a couple quotes. That I may know him, page 206. He would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to, to die that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What's the workmanship of workmanship? Not record. Workmanship. What's that? That's us. And reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ imputed righteousness. What's being described there? Through what? Imputed righteousness. Well, maybe it's a one-off. Maybe she got confused. Maybe it's a typo. Let's go to another one. Amazing Grace 96. But we all, with open faces, beholding as a, in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even of the Spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. What law is being described here? Worship. The law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. It's a reality that we are changed based on what we admire, esteem, and worship. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as, the hidden, as hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. When we make him our personal savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. Again, what's being described here? Is it transformation? Keep going. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Uh, one, uh, maybe a couple more quick ones. This is uh, Amazing Grace 181. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous. Having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. Remember Second Second uh, Corinthians 5? He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We actually become righteous, not get declared even though we're not. Such a corruption. And then our high calling, 364. We aim too low. Yes, we do. We aim for being declared righteous even though we're not. That's what we aim for. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. The law of God is, is the exalted standard to which all are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. Again, imputed and parted, they make a big distinction about nothing. It's all transformational. If you're not being transformed... You're not partaking and participating in God's plan to heal. It'd be no different than you have metastatic cancer and the doctor has a remedy that will put the cancer into remission and you believe the doctor and you trust the doctor, but you never actually take the remedy. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph, uh, is a quotation from Testimonies to the Church, volume 2, page 213. Christ has shown that his love was stronger than death. Cogitate on that. His emotional affection and, and, and longing for you is stronger than death. Is that what it means? Now, there, there's truth. He did love you with emotional longing and deep affection. There's no question in that. Is that all that it means? Just the deep feelings of connection that he has? Or is there something more going on here? Yes. 
Maybe this character of love overcomes death. Mm. Yeah. What is the basis of life? Or where is where does pardon? And where does the law of love have its origination? God is love. And, and the law of love originates with God. It's his essence or being. And how did he build life to operate? Upon what? Upon love. So love is stronger than death. Does it mean, quote, uh, this, is, this is quoting out of uh, about Christ, that he, quote, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, Second Timothy 1.10, or, quote, Hebrews 2.14, by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death that is the devil. Death comes from... If life comes from God, where does death come from? Does death come from God? Do you know penal substitution teaches it does? That God is required by law and justice to use his power to put down the sinner, to kill them. And if he could just get a little anger management and control his power and wrath, we could, have etern- we could live eternally in, in our sin, because sin actually doesn't harm us. It's God that's the source of harm. This is what penal substitution theology teaches. It's a lie. Life comes from God. Death comes from breaking our connection with God, the source of life. Another way of saying that, from violating the laws that he built life to operate upon, the ultimate one being love. And so if death comes from violating God's design law of love, then how does Christ's love stronger than death? What you love, you can't die. So at the cross, did... Love for God and love for each other, excuse me, love for others, love for God and love for others, was that a motive in Christ's heart? And in Gethsemane in the cross that weekend, did he have that motive, love for God and love for others? Did he also have temptation that was tempting him to protect himself and not die? The survival drives in Gethsemane. Did he have human anguish and emotion that tempted him? And, and he expressed that temptation. Father, if it be possible, I don't want to have to die. Survival drive. And on the cross, repeatedly, if you, you saved others, save yourself, we'll believe you. Save yourself, save yourself. That's the, that's the survival drive. That's the infection. That's the me first. That's selfishness. He was tempted in every point, just like we are, yet without sin. So at the cross, we see the principles of death warring against the law of life and love was stronger than death. The law of life eviscerated, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Understand this, because the penal liars will tell you that Jesus died the second death. The second death is the death where people die because they have been consumed by sin and selfishness and permanently severed their connection with God, and they exist no more. That's why the second death comes. Christ did not die that death. He destroyed the cause of that death and thus destroyed death and restored the principles of life into the humanity he assumed, becoming our Savior. Yes? Is that why it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death? Yes. Yes. Continuing on the quote, he accomplished man's salvation, and although he had the most fearful conflict with the powers of darkness, yet amid it all... His love grew stronger and stronger. He endured the hiding of his father's countenance until he was led to exclaim in bitterness of his soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Pause. 
they will tell you, well, this was God, God, God was mad at him. He was angry. He, once the sin was laid on him, he loved his son, but once the sin was placed on him, it was offensive to him. And, and, and the father became angry with him and, and the father's wrath was poured out upon him. And he had to punish Jesus as a sinner, even though he loved him because he was still sinless. But, but the legal system required it. That's not what happened here. In order for Christ to be tempted in all points like we are, and in order for him to overcome death and destroy that infection of that survival drive and restore love perfectly, he has to die as a human being. Can he die as a human being if he remains connected with his father? Remember, he stayed away from Lazarus for three days. Because had he gone to Lazarus prior to Lazarus' first death experience there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. God's withdrawing his presence was not an act of punishment or wrath or anger in that sense. It was the two of them cooperating fully together to accomplish the mission that they jointly needed to accomplish, which was eradicating sin from the species human and restoring God's law back into the species human. Christ had to die there. And the only way he could do it was to have his connection with the source, the infinite source of life, let go of him. So God let him go to accomplish the mission. This was not the father punishing him. Now, some will say, when I say Christ didn't die the second death, then you're saying he died the first death. No, I'm not. Christ didn't die the first or second death. Just as his birth was unique, his birth, we were, we were born of a sinful mother and a sinful father. Adam was created out of sinless uh, out of dirt and made a sinless being. Eve was taken from the side of a sinless being. Christ's humanity didn't come in any of those ways. Christ's humanity came from a sinful woman and the Holy Spirit moving upon her. His humanity was unique. It's not exactly like ours. He partook of our nature to overcome and heal it. But it wasn't exactly like ours. And his death was unique. It wasn't first death just sleeping. And it wasn't second death eternal eradication. It was the death that was necessary to destroy the death-causing principle in human species and restore God's design in, in us. It was the victory. And then it goes on to say, the price, was paid, the price was paid to purchase the redemption of man. When, the, when in the last soul struggle, the blessed words were uttered, it is finished. Okay, price paid to whom? How do we understand that? If your child's dying of renal failure and you donate a kidney to save them, we can rightly say you paid a, a high price or you paid a price to save your child. There was a price you had to pay. Pain, suffering, but ultimately the kidney that you donated. Why was that price necessary? Was it a legal price? Was it an artificial arbitrary? Was it set by a judge, a magistrate? Once that price was paid, the hospital administrator ruled that your child doesn't have to die? No, it was the price the condition required. There was a price. Somebody had to destroy the fear and selfishness infecting human hearts and restore God's perfect love into the species human. We couldn't do it. Christ became human to achieve it. And it cost him. It cost him greatly. There was a high price he paid. It wasn't legal. It was the price of reality. There's a couple of points I have to get to in the lesson um, because I just have to unpack a couple of things. We'll skip the ransom because we just kind of talked about that. Um, In the bottom of Monday's lesson, it says, Imagine you're in an art museum. Someone's child throws a balloon filled with ink at a Rembrandt painting and ruins it completely. The painting is worth millions. The parents could not 
come close to paying the debt owed, even if they sold everything they owned. It was, in what sense does this image help us understand just how serious the breach, a breach sin has caused, how helpless we are to fix it, and why only the Lord himself could pay the debt? This is, and let me break it down for you. You guys can see this is something wrong with this. Let me break it down why it's wrong. This is exactly the type of analogy they give when you have a human law construct. Okay, uh, it describes a misconduct being carried out against a painting, and then they shift shift away from the condition of the painting to the monetary value, which is artificially assigned. Money is an artificial construct, and the monetary value is artificially c- constructed, and they've created a false monetary debt beyond the ability of the parents to pay, just like they create a false legal debt beyond our ability to pay. The analogy would be more accurate to say that the child, uh, that neither the child nor the parents have the ability, the artistic skills, to remove the paint and restore the original Rembrandt painting. But Rembrandt happened to be around the corner, and he came around and he cleaned the painting and restored it to its original luster and beauty. That's our creator God came and became human to restore humanity back to its original luster and beauty. That's it. But they, of course, corrupt it with an artificial depiction. Yes. Um, Wednesday's lesson. Let's see if this is where I want to go. There's one other point I wanted to make. Oh, yes, yes, Wednesday's lesson. Uh, Second paragraph. Uh, um, Because... They're dealing with the term reckoned, accounted, this type of thing. It says the term, the same term employed in other texts, and they're trying to make the case that it is righteous and and reasonable for God to reckon something to be one thing when it's actually another thing. And so they found some examples in Scripture where the term is used like this. The term is employed in other texts in the books of Moses. A person or a thing is reckoned or regarded as something that the person or thing is not. For instance, in Genesis 31.15, Rachel and Leah uh, affirmed that their father reckons, regards, or counts them as strangers, although they are his daughters. The tithe of the Levites is reckoned or regarded or counted as if it were corn on the threshing floor. Obviously, it is not corn. (sighs) First off, I hope you put your your, uh, reasoning discerning caps on and process this. People are sinners. God is holy. Does God conduct himself as sinners do? And so we find two sinners, Leah and Rachel, using a word in a certain way. Does that mean God uses that word in that same way? Number one. And just because a term can be used in a way as Leah and Rachel does here, does that mean that it always is used in that way? Well, since they did it, it must mean God did it. Crazy. Why is it so important that we actually not be made righteous? Because, because they, they have a false system where it's impossible. It, they can't be. They can't be made righteous in their system. So they have to have a, a mechanisms. And also they want to have power over God that they don't trust. I, I have a payment made, and God, because the payment's made, now has no legal uh, authority to hurt me. So they, get, they actually use this system to exert power over God. But the example of Rachel using the word in regard to her father is an allegation she makes against her father. He, she's making an allegation. It doesn't mean her allegation is true. 
We don't know that her father really regarded her not as uh, a daughter anymore. That's her allegation. The Pharisees in Christ's day regarded Jesus as having a demon. They counted him as being on Beelzebub's side. That's how they regarded Jesus. And they used that, that you could, they could use that term in that way. We regard you as the son of Beelzebub. Does that make it so? Therefore, this is, no, it just tells you how confused their thinking is about reality. And then the example of counting offerings and tithes as if the, it was corn from the threshing floor, or, or if you read the text, wine from the wine press. The lesson wants you to believe that God is setting up a system where he counts something that isn't as as is, isn't the way it actually is. And it's a result of several cognitive distortions on the part of the lesson authors. First, uh, misdiagnosis of the sin problem, uh, thinking that it's legal rather than um, the condition of being, uh, looking through an imposed law lens, failure to understand the metaphorical nature of all the sanctuary-related symbology and taking these things as if they're literal. And third, being unable to abstract. They don't have abstract thinking. They're very concrete. <coughs> Sorry, i got a frog in my throat. Hey, Jennings is eating amphibians. Okay. Um, you know, it's concrete thinking. And this is what they do. They take this stuff very literally. Uh, what they said here, obviously it's not corn, if you consider it corn. This is a metaphor. Understand in the sanctuary service system, the wine press and the threshing floor were object lessons to teach the pressing out of our souls of the fear and selfishness, uh, the discipline that we go through, or the threshing, the getting away the chaff and getting rid of the chaff and, and getting the, 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 the whole pure corn or wheat. This was just a metaphor, an object lesson to teach. And so he says, when you give your tithes and offerings from a converted heart, it will be viewed as a heart that has gone through the threshing floor, the corn that's been, uh, uh, the corn that's been going through the threshing floor. It's purified. It's, it's holy. That's all it's saying. It's not saying we'll actually consider it as corn. How silly. I wish I had time to, oh, boy, we're already over by a minute or two, and I want to get to our question and answers. I will tell you, look in my notes. Thursday's lesson and then go into the quote uh, in Friday's lesson because I unpacked that quote in Friday's lesson um, that they used to try and in, 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 um, suggest that there is some penal legal thing going on. And I, and I show you that it's always about changing the heart, that the righteousness that God attributes or accounts to us is only the righteousness that we bring to him that resides in our hearts. The way you bring Christ's righteousness to the Father is by having the righteousness in your heart. If it's not in your heart, you can't bring it to him because you bring yourself to the Father. And that's how you bring the righteousness of Christ to the Father. And that's why he sees the righteousness of Christ and declares you to be righteous because it's actually abiding in your heart. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your truth that you've revealed in Christ, for, for the way you've created reality to operate. We ask that you will now pour your spirit upon us, take the victories in, of Christ, reproduce that in us so that we, when you come, we will be able to stand in your presence, for we will be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.